The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Today I'm joined by Bill Kirby, who is a professor both at Harvard Business School and at Harvard University, where he teaches China studies. It's a pleasure to have one of America's great historians of modern China here. Not only was Bill Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science, he was head of the Asia Center, head of the Fairbanks Center, but he's probably most famous for singing with Peter Bowles the song that allows students to memorize the Chinese dynasty, but I'm not going to ask him today to repeat that. But I did note today that it has over 110,000 hits on the YouTube. Um, he also teaches an online course on Chinese history with what I recall is tens of thousands of students? About 50,000. 50,000 students. It's remarkable. He has just completed a book which is called Can China Lead? Reaching the Limits of Power and Growth, and that's what we're going to discuss today. So Bill, my first question is why this book, why now, and why three authors? Okay. Well, the three authors is the easiest. The three of us, um, Regina Abrami, who's now at Wharton, and Warren McFarland and I, uh, we've taught a course at Harvard Business School called Doing Business in China. And in that process, we developed about 40 HBS cases, looking at contemporary Chinese businesses, looking at foreign businesses in China, looking at state-owned and private, uh, looking at a whole range of enterprises and circumstances in China that need to that try to identify for business leaders where China is going. Uh, this book seeks to ask a question that really has been asked for well over a hundred years, asked a hundred years ago. Uh, will the 21st century, today we ask, be the Chinese century, used to be asked of the 20th century? And the question is, can China's current growth pattern continue? This is something on which we have serious doubts. In the book, you really you talk about the growth model, in fact, having basically reached where it can go, that we've seen it lift 500 million Chinese out of poverty. Why do you think it's reached as far as it's going to go? Well, the growth model that we have is really a model that dates back to Sun Yat-sen and to the nationalist period. The growth model from 1978 is in many ways a return to the nationalist model of an engineering state. Uh, building the infrastructure to create a modern China. And that infrastructure has helped 500 million people lift themselves out of poverty. I don't think the state lifted them out of poverty so much as they lifted themselves once they were given the opportunity to do so. Uh, but it is the same state uh, that provides severe breaks on private entrepreneurship, as magnificent as that sector has grown. The state-owned sector continues to be strong and continues to dominate very surprising areas uh, of the market. And it, the state power both strengthens and limits an essential element for Chinese leadership in the 21st century, and that is education. It builds the infrastructure, the hardware for education, but it very much limits the software uh, for creative education in the 21st century. Isn't the majority of Chinese growth now coming from the private sector? And hasn't that line with kind of a 
a dip around the time of uh, in 2009, 2010 as a result of the stimulus. Hasn't the private sector accounted for an increasing percentage of Chinese growth? Absolutely it has. And yet you'll find in a wide range of areas, for example, we did a case on the wine industry, uh, on red wine. China is now the fifth largest producer of wine uh, in the world. Uh, why should in so many areas that are not st strategic industries from any political perspective, unlike railroads or airports or things of this sort, remain in state hands? And the answer is, in part, some areas are ludicrously profitable, but the state monopolizes many areas even of what one might call light industry or of consumer industries, local, municipal, provincial uh, firms, not just centrally owned firms. That's one part of it. And a second part of it is the navigation of the state by every private firm it adds an enormously greater burden to Chinese firms uh, than, for example, their American or European counterparts. And the third thing uh, that I would say is without a reform of the banking sector, private uh, startup industries, small and medium-sized industries, still have to raise money the way they did 200 years ago, from friends and families, now classmates, people from their local home base, but not from banks. Banks, State banks exist to support state-owned enterprises still to this moment. Right, but we've seen a growth of what I would call the microfinance industry, which yes. is kind of institutionalizing lending that banks don't make that the state-owned banks cannot make small loans, so we've seen kind of this intermediation occur this is by no, private enterprises. We, we have seen that, and we do talk about that. That's a very positive development, but it's really just the beginning of what could happen and not what has not happened yet. And it's not the result, really, it's of any state initiative. I don't, I, I actually think that they have adopted that well, my next question, yes. I, yeah. I, I'll get into a discussion yeah, that I happen to be a part owner of a, of a microfinance company, which has been around for a dozen years, and under the 12-5-year the, the plan, uh, they actually have adopted policies which have made, which, allow it, which have increased the lending of that, you know, that group. But you think the Chinese leadership agrees with you? No, I don't think that. You don't think so? I think they actually do. How so? I think that they see that the plan which has worked for the last 35 years is no longer workable and that when you read the 12th five-year plan and you look at the third plenum reforms that a lot of what you talk about in the book is actually suggested okay. in that, that that having market forces predominate when you say market forces predominate that's just the shorthand for getting the state out of the business right which is what no, you, no, no. I, you say i absolutely agree with you that the rhetoric of the 12th five-year plan is very much in line with some of the solutions or some of the prescriptions uh, that we have in this book. That rhetoric has so far rather outpaced the reality in the last year and a half, for the last year. Well, I, I, would you say it is a, the 12th five-year, or, the, or the, the third plenum reforms more so, the, is change as far-reaching as the, the, the Gai Be Kai Fang of Deng Xiaoping, that these changes are so significant that we should expect them to occur slowly? I, I would prefer to wait to see the actions rather than the rhetoric. With, I don't believe at the moment they can be compared to the 
transformation that began in December of 1978. At the end of each chapter, you, you kind of explain the implication. I mean, it's kind of it's such an interesting book for, for, for an academic in a lot of ways, because at the end of each chapter, you kind of explain the implications of the chapter for the way you should think about doing business in China. What do you think your mentor, John Fairbank, uh, your teacher would think about that, who was very much about kind of academic for academic sake. No, I think you misunderstood. I mean, I was I was Fairbank's last uh, graduate student, and, right? And he he was uh, a very practical man in every aspect of his life, and every book that he write, wrote, he tried to make shorter and punchier. Uh, his book, his most famous book for most Americans, uh, The United States and China, was written with the very simple mission of explaining China to Americans. It was not a work of great historical depth. Mm-hmm. It was a work of great clarity and power. And our effort at the end of each chapter is to tell uh, individuals who are serious students of China, and particularly those who seek to do business in China, what are the lessons that you need to take away from this particular chapter? And what are the questions that you need to ask yourself and your Chinese partners about how you're going ahead. Yeah, and I, I think it's a terrific way to end each chapter. It really made me stand back and think, as somebody who did business in China for 25 years, stand back and think about the assumptions which I made in, in doing business. So it's a great reason to for business people to be reading the book. When you ask, can China lead, in a lot of ways, it's a question that you can't answer generally, that you need to answer in each sector. Of course. So when I always think about it, I say, well, there are certain sectors, in fact, where America, for its own political um, system, will not lead, for instance, climate change. Do you think that's one in which we'll see Chinese leadership? Or are there other areas where you think we'll see Chinese leadership? I think that's one area where you very much can see Chinese leadership. Already see it. You're beginning to see it, I believe. But... uh, you know, this is a country that, because of its rapid industrialization, has some of the greatest environmental challenges in the world. It also has a government that has the capacity uh, to enact change in such areas, a strong enough government, uh, without the need, without a legion of lawyers to challenge it on every front, uh, that it actually can get things done. And so in some sense, as we talk about China as a government of engineers, this is an er- area where engineering can make a very important difference. Mm-hmm. And I think we will begin to see that in the coming decade. Mm-hmm. I'm given actually very significant hope about China's ecological future by what we've seen in Taiwan, a place that also was once run by engineers. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Other areas where you think China might lead? I think if here you see the challenges one of the questions that we have about global leadership is that every country that has been deemed a global leader in the 19th and 20th century, say England and Germany in the 19th century, the United States in the 20th century, very possibly China in the 21st century, has been a leader in education, uh, a leader in defining what it means to be educated and uh, setting models of educational institutions that are emulated the world over. I think China could lead in this area. But for that to happen, there would have to be very significant reforms of governance just within the university sector or within the school sector uh, and a depoliticization of education. Probably as much or probably more than any American, you're playing a role in that as part of the you know, head of the advisory board of the Schwarzman Scholars, now playing a role at Duke Kunshan. 
Do you see those as potential models for reform of China's educational system, especially Duke Kunshan? I do. I do. I think that Duke Kunshan University is potentially the most extraordinary Chinese-American joint ventures since the establishment of Yanjing University in 1928, uh, a place that itself, well, Yanjing University is the physical campus of today's Peking University and really, in many ways, the foundation of today's uh, Peking University. Uh, as, uh, and what Duke Kunshan University can do, but what many Chinese universities are experimenting with doing, is to establish, or what shall say re-establish, uh, a liberal arts college, a liberal arts curriculum to bring the humanities and the social sciences back to the center of what it means to be educated in an age otherwise dominated by engineering and science. And I believe that this is a way in which Chinese education can move toward being in the forefront, uh, both of education and of innovation. Uh, it's a large, large challenge. But China has today, both in the large, in the great universities of Tsinghua, of Beida, and in the Sino-foreign uh, experiments, such as Duke Kunshan University or Schwarzman College, it is a place of extraordinary experimentation in education. Speaking of education and being with one of the leading scholars on modern China, um, how do you put the demonstrations in Hong Kong led by students in the context of, of kind of Chinese history, and how do you how does it ultimately play out? Well, I, historians are much better at predicting the past <laughs> than predicting the future. So how it will play out, uh, I really cannot pretend to know. I think it shows one of the great advantages that Hong Kong has had and continues to have. Uh, in its, with its very considerable degree of autonomy, is an educational sector uh, of free and open inquiry. And this is a series of protests that began really two years ago in a protest against patriotic education, you may remember, uh, a protest against the fear of education being either dumbed down uh, or being forced to have mainland textbooks on Chinese history and Chinese studies in a way uh, that would limit uh, the capacity of individuals to know this history and culture of their own country. Uh, and it was young people, remarkably high school students and college students, but in particular high school students who led this revolt uh, just two years ago. Uh, and the government wisely, the Hong Kong government, wisely backed down. At this point, of course, you know, it's difficult to assess from this, this distance. But you see, both a, you see both a strength, that is to say the strength of an idealistic youth in Hong Kong, and the weakness of an imperfectly reformed political system in Hong Kong, which makes it very difficult for anyone to run that place. You have, if I may, you have, no matter who is in authority, you have, and the excellent people have served in this role, you have a chief executive who has authority, but no legitimacy. You have a legislature, that has legitimacy but no authority. Happily, Hong Kong still has an excellent professional civil service. Right. Well, I think that's a fascinating. We could we could speak for hours, uh, but we want this to remain a podcast. So I want to thank Bill Kirby for being here, and I want to tell everyone who listens that Can China Lead is a must-read for both the generalist and the specialist on China. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Steve.